to listen to all three speakers and then let's talk about what you agree with, what you disagree with, and what your experience is, where you've been going with this journey. So um, I would like to introduce first Larry. Larry, oh, hot, I'm sorry. Hutchings, yes, of course, Larry Hutchings, that's very bad. Um, from museology, I first got some really important experience uh, at a state workshop, state history workshop on accessibility that was done by Larry's company, Museology. And I was very impressed with what I learned there and it opened my eyes to a lot of different things and uh, so I knew I wanted to call them right away when, when the, the idea for the panel was accepted. So we'll talk first with Larry and then we'll talk with Jessica Sutherland of the Minnesota Historical Society and she's at the James J. Hill House, an absolutely beautiful mansion that is, um, oh, Downton Abbey, Downton Abbey, like it's just beautiful. So Larry, take it away. Well, as any of you that have been here for the last 10 minutes know, we've been having some problems with a Mac versus a PC. No. So yeah, so we are connected now. So we kind of changed the order we were speaking and, and here we go. Uh, so as Maureen said, uh, I'm not an expert. I'm someone who uh, believes that everybody should say, have the same access to what we're um, presenting in our museums. Uh, so it's not just about checking off a list so that you can meet the requirements of the ADA. It's making things accessible for everyone. So what I wanna talk about here first is just some basic practical things that you can do in your own museum they're not gonna cost you anything. They're just, it's some stuff you can do as you're planning an exhibit from the start. So the first thing I wanna talk about a little bit are the principles of universal design. There are seven principles. Uh, the first one, as you can see, is equitable use. That means that everyone can use it. Uh, anytime we make an exhibit that is accessible to people with different abilities, it's better for everyone. So the second principle is flexibility and use. There are many ways of doing something. If someone uses an interactive wrong, wrong in quotation marks, they still get a good experience from it. It's going to have meaning still. Simple and intuitive use. You should be able to figure out how to experience your exhibit without having to have a docent telling you how to do it. You should be able to know which button you should push to make something happen. Perceptible information, what a concept. You're sharing information and you want people to be able to have access to it and to perceive what it's all about. Uh, tolerance for error, this is uh, related to the simple intuitive use. You can do something wrong and it still will work. Low physical effort, have you ever come up to a door that you weren't expecting to be as heavy as it was? Uh, that can be challenging. Uh, so we want to be careful uh, that you aren't wearing out your visitors, especially if they have different abilities. And finally, size and space for approach and use. You know, we typically would think of this in terms of uh, a wheelchair user, 
but it has meaning for everybody. Everybody needs to be able to approach your exhibits and uh, make use of them. So what I want to start out by talking about are some key dimensions. If you remember these six numbers, it'll be great. First one is 67. 67 inches above the floor. Don't put text, if you can help it, above that level. A huge title can go higher than that, something that you can see from a distance, but don't put the text that you expect people to be able to read above, uh, you know, how does that feel in your neck just thinking about it? Second one, 60 inches. That's the diameter of a circle that a wheelchair user needs to turn around. So if you don't want people getting stuck in uh, dead ends in your museum, you have to allow them a way to get out again. So 60-inch circle for wheelchair users. This, there's also another use for the 60 inches. That is a great level if you're hanging uh, a panorama or some kind of a, a photograph with a horizon line. Put the horizon line at 60 inches. So we got kind of double duty for that number. 54, center your labels, your main labels at that level. So as you're mounting them on the wall, measure up 54 inches and then put the center of your main labels at that height. 43 is kind of the lower limit, kind of the lower limit for putting text. Uh, and I'll, I'll show you a graphic about that, that that'll make more sense. So you want the, uh, your text generally between 43 inches and 67 inches uh, above the floor. 40, you don't want your slanters or reading rails, the back, the high end of them to be higher than 40 inches. And some authorities say 36 inches. So, you know, check out your local uh, codes, uh, see what's suggested there uh, and go with that. Uh, and if in doubt, Ask someone that uses a wheelchair. Say, how, how, high can, you know, how high a barrier can you see over? And finally, 27 inches is the minimum clearance that you need for a wheelchair user to pull up, say, to a, a workstation or a bench or something like that, to be able to fit their feet underneath the table. That's the minimum amount of room that you need. Another use for 27 inches, if you're hanging a case on the wall and it sticks out more than four inches, you want the bottom edge of that case at or below 27 inches. The reason for that is that a person with low vision that uses a cane can detect, their cane will hit the bottom edge of that uh, case on the wall if it's at or below 27 inches. So one is a, a maximum, the other is a minimum. A couple of uses there. So these, uh, these are what they all look like. And my, my shading doesn't really show up on there. So what we have here is uh, a vertical line marked in feet. And I have these six dimensions. Well, actually, I have only five of them marked out. 60 inches isn't on here. Uh, the area that doesn't show very well between 40, uh, yeah, 43 and 67, that's where you want the bulk of your text to fall. I actually created this little graphic in uh, Adobe Illustrator, and when I'm designing an exhibit, the first thing I do as I'm designing uh, an elevation of a wall is to place this graphic 
into my InDesign document or whatever I'm doing the design in. So that I am from the very beginning, I'm looking at these measurements and I'm making sure that the design fits uh, in accordance with this. So that's a very generalized, the one I just showed you is a very generalized kind of an average of averages uh, kind of document. It's a lot more nuanced than that. This is a, a diagram uh, of the uh, Minnesota State Accessibility Code and you can see it, it has all kinds of images on it. And these are really, really helpful. They have the width of hallways. Uh, I was noticing uh, this morning, I was in this room for another session and I noticed that the steps that the, uh, the different tiers of tables are on are specified in a document like this. So you can go online and search for your state's accessibility code and you'll probably be able to get a document somewhat like this. It looks kind of intimidating just to glance at it, but when you start looking at it just picture by picture, it really makes sense. So going back to the simple diagram, what this is all about is what's called the cone of vision. This diagram is from Arminta Neal's uh, 1969 book called Help for the Small Museum. You know, it's really outdated, it's so outdated that it's vintage, you can probably use her book again. So what it, what it basically means is that the average person is comfortable looking up about 30 degrees and down about 45 degrees and from side to side at about 30 degrees. And if you could see the shaded area, you would see that this cone of vision corresponds to that very neatly, by the way. But this is what it's really all about. You don't want people having to bend over and have cricks in their back or having to bend up so that they can see things that are too high. So this is another one of Arminta's wonderful illustrations. Just, you know, put yourself in the visitor's uh, position. Literally, go through your museum, borrow a wheelchair, go through your museum, find out where the problems are, what you can do about them. Working with another person, put on a blindfold, experience your museum the way a person with low vision might experience it. Uh, this can be a real eye-opener as you walk through a gallery with a bunch of glass cases because if you don't have sight, that visitor can't access your exhibits at all without some other uh, means of use. Uh, go through your exhibit, pretend you have low mobility, put your hand in a fist, see how far through the exhibit you can get. Can you even open the door? If you don't, aren't able to grab with your hand, when you're in the wheelchair, it's really an eye-opener. Can you push a door open in a wheelchair? It's challenging. I worked with a, a temporary employee one time who used a wheelchair, and there was about a half-inch step at the front door, and she used to complain about that half-inch trying to get over it, and I, I never really understood it until I got in a wheelchair myself and tried to get over that little half-inch threshold. Uh, so test out, it's fun, really. Get your colleagues in neighboring museums, get your board involved, get all of your staff involved, and have a party. Be careful, it can look like you're making fun of people. You're not, you're learning. And when all else fails, talk to people that are differently abled and find out what their experiences are. So these are some average eye levels. Arminta has drawn this, the average eye level of an American man at five, 
feet, four and one quarter inches. Uh, I just double checked this measurements. Apparently, we are at, on average about three quarters of an inch taller today than we were in 1969. Uh, I know that I am taller than I was in 1969. Uh, and for a woman, she's listed four feet, 11 and one quarter inches. It's now five, three, I believe. But she was really optimistic about the size of an average six-year-old. Uh, most six-year-olds are not as tall as she says they are here. So these are just things to keep in mind. Remember you're designing exhibits for a human scale. So here it is in practice. This is a, a conceptual drawing for the National Eagle Center in Wabasha. The first thing I did here, as I said before, was to put my diagram with those measurements on and then placed all of the major elements within that shaded area between 43 inches above the floor and 67 inches above the floor. You can see that the titles are higher than that. Some huge graphics are higher than that. Uh, but it just so happened that I made the wallpaper with the graphic on it in the final product. That very same, it, it fit between that space. What doesn't show in this picture is that this is in a circular room in a rotunda, and that was not fun. So another thing you can do, as you're planning an exhibit space, you start with a floor plan. And the first thing I do with the floor plan is draw that 60-inch diameter circle. And I start plugging it in as I'm placing exhibit cases. I'm making sure that there's room for people to get around, that there's room to turn. And remember, this not only will make it easier for someone using a wheelchair, it will be better for all of your visitors to have that space. 17-inch uh, uh, walkways in exhibit galleries are not really that helpful. Uh, this was for a small museum in, uh, in Minnesota. Um, this is in the balcony of a historic church building. There are three access points to this exhibit, two of them by stairs and one by a lift. So we put on uh, three main labels, three introductory labels in this particular exhibit. So people entering from any direction uh, could get their bearings. Uh, now I wanna talk quickly about a few more things that improve accessibility. And one of them is label writing. Use the principles of plain language. Uh, it's I discovered that there's actually a website, the Federal Plain Language Guidelines, and I've got that uh, website on, on another slide. It's amazing because it's written in plain language and you can actually understand what they're trying to tell you to do. Their audience is people that write federal guidelines and laws trying to make things more understandable for lay folk. We actually in our company have been going through all of our contracts and our presentations, our exhibit plans, and rewriting everything with the principles of plain language. It's about avoiding jargon. And as much as I love big words, it's about avoiding big words. You want to use the active voice, not the passive voice. And keep sentences short. Remember, the New York Times is written at about an eighth grade level. It's not dumbed down, it's written more simply, and everyone will have better access to it if you do that. Uh, I don't need to tell you to proofread, do I? You've all got grammar checks and spell checks and everything. They don't know everything, get human eyes, and many of them 
on your scripts. And finally, limit the length of labels. This is really, really hard. We used to aim for 300 words on an entire exhibit panel. We are now working with the goal of no paragraph being longer than 50 words. It forces you to be concise and clear. We joke about in, in my company that as you're preparing an exhibit, you research as if you're writing your master's thesis, but then you take that master's thesis and you condense it into a sonnet. <laughs> then take that sonnet and turn it into a haiku, and that's what's going to go on the wall in your gallery. Typography and layout, <clears throat> use both uppercase and lowercase, not all caps. Um, it's not only shouting, it's harder to read if you use all caps. Justify left, leave the right ragged, use enough letting. A lot of people put the lines of text too close together. Personally, it makes me feel very claustrophobic. I have trouble breathing when I try to read a text like that. Uh, same with margins. If the margins aren't wide enough, it makes my shoulders constrict. and. Uh, and it's kind of tough. Uh, avoid script and italic type. They're harder to read for someone with low vision. It's also easier to read for everyone. Keep the line lengths short. Just don't go, you know, 36, 40 inches wide with your blocks of type. As I said, keep the margins wide and provide alternative forms of labels. Uh, maybe uh, just a, a photocopied sheet with a large text version of your uh, exhibit text. Uh, you can prototype typography. Create a draft label. You know, decide how, how large the different uh, aspects of the hierarchy of exhibit labels, what they're going to be set in. You know, the titles are going to be this big in this font. The primary labels are going to be this big and in this font. Uh, and then print them out in the color you're going to use. Print them out life-size. Tape them up on the wall of your office. and. Uh, and just read it. I learned this from a client. He printed out all his, we were working not on design for them, but on teaching them how to do design. He printed out examples of label text using the fonts and the sizes, and he wrote things like, you know, this is Fortuna font at 26 point. Can I read it from two feet away? Can I read it from across the room? And he did this with all different kinds of sizes, and it was great. You could tell at a glance. You can have your board members come in and look at it. You can have the public look at it. You can put it out in an exhibit space. So ask people for feedback. And then here's the tricky part. Apply the feedback. And then retest it. Do as many iterations as you need. Uh, and very quickly, color choices. I don't know if you can read this or not. It says, I am elegant. So elegant and beautiful that you can't even read me but I am elegant. I used to get caught up by this a lot. It was really popular in advertising in the late 80s and the 90s, and I just thought it was gorgeous. Did this too much, bad thing. Too much contrast. Uh, this is, is a, a label in red and green. It vibrates. This is on the screen. It's not as painful as it was on my uh, computer monitor. Um, I just kind of had to put my hands in front of the screen. Um, we don't have time right now to talk about this. Wanted to show it to you. It kind of breaks every rule in the book, and I really, really like it. Um, watch out for your own ego, because you can fall in love with something. 
my rationale was this was an exhibit aimed at high schoolers. It was going into a high school. And I thought, I'm trying to make the Civil War in the Gettysburg Address interesting to this age group. And so we tried to do that. I'm going to skip over my design philosophies. Here are a few resources that you might want to look at. I'm not going to be able to leave this up here long enough for you to write these down. Talk to me afterwards or email me and I can get you a copy of this program for you. And I've gone over time, so I'm going to stop there. Thank you. Oh, yeah, I've got, I actually remembered to bring business cards. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to shut down so that Jessica can get moving here. Unplug you, hit a button, and I'll be ready to go. Look, it worked. Yes, thank you. <laughs> All right, great. Um, so, hi, I'm Jessica Sutherland. I'm the program supervisor here at the James J. Hill House, also known as a not a bad place to go to work every day. It's beautiful, beautiful. Uh, Minnesota's Downton Abbey, as you said. I think we got on that bag bandwagon a little bit late, but that's okay. Uh, you can almost see my office, too. It used to be one of the daughter's dressing rooms. It's lovely. Um, so uh, while Larry spoke a little bit more toward exhibit design and accessibility, I'm going to speak more toward the physical accessibility of this historic house museum and in programming as well. There we go. Uh, so a little bit of background info about the James J. Hill House. It is one of 26 sites, historic sites and museums owned and operated by the Minnesota Historical Society, which is the largest state historical society in the country in terms of membership. And we're actually even older than the state of Minnesota itself. So we're pretty proud of that. And uh, so the house itself is um, a historic as I said, a uh, multi-use historic house museum. So it doesn't just, we don't just do tours, we also rent it out for a giant yoga event that we do in December where 300 people do yoga in the hallway, which is pretty fun. Um, we also do corporate dinners, lectures, concerts, high school prom, if you can believe it, actually, <laughs> which is super fun. Um, but our main tour program runs Wednesday through Sunday and we're open year round, which is pretty great. Um, the house was built by James J. Hill. Anybody heard of James J. Hill? I know Jody has. <laughs> you don't count. All right. So <laughs> James J. Hill um, built and uh, operated the Great Northern Railway, which was a transcontinental. So it went all the way from Minneapolis and St. Paul all the way out to Seattle, Washington. And when you make that kind of money, you want to show it off a little bit. So he built this house in 1891 for himself, his wife, Mary, and eight of their 10 children. So a big Irish Catholic family. 36,000 square feet built for just about a million dollars. So yeah, not a bad place to go to work every day. Um, and uh, after the Hill family owned it, the uh, children decided actually not to keep the house in the family after Mr. and Mrs. Hill died. So the house actually passed to the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis, who owned it for the next 50 years. But even though the kids really didn't want the house, they did want most of the things in the house. So unlike a lot of historic house museums, we actually don't have a lot of the original furniture left, which is actually really liberating for us. It allows us to do a lot of those rental things that I was mentioning and allows us to do a lot of really accessible programming because you're not stuck behind a rope in most of our rooms, which is pretty great. 
Um, and then the Historical Society acquired the house from the Archdiocese in 1978, and we underwent seven years and $3 million with the restoration, and the house opened to the public for the first time in 1985. So there you go, quick uh, background info. And so I'm going to first talk a little bit about the physical accessibility of the house. So I mentioned that the Historical Society acquired the house in 1978, and it was at that point that a lot of the accessible features were installed. So we actually do have, the house is actually fully wheelchair accessible, which is great. So we have a ramp on the side of the house. Um, the fun part about the ramp is that it does have one of those little handicap buttons, right? So you're supposed to push it and the door is supposed to open. But that doesn't actually happen. What happens is it buzzes our front desk and we go and open the door but that's okay too. <laughs> so most of the time it works out pretty fine, except when we're really busy at the front desk and then they might have to wait a minute for the door to open. So uh, we also have an elevator, which is really great. Um, the house originally had a, what they call a manual lift. So a really big kind of giant version of a dumbwaiter, right? And they would use it for like trunks and things to reel them upstairs. So a really good open space to put an elevator. We actually didn't have to do too much to the actual fabric of the house to install that, which is really great. We did have to take out part of the uh, servant staircase, but generally really great. Um, and we're super pleased to have that. So our regular tour is actually fully wheelchair accessible, except for the last room on the tour, which is the boiler room, and there's seven steps down to that. So uh, well, we were very intentional about the crafting of our regular tour to make sure that it was really wheelchair accessible. Um, so I would say, you know, the first Generally, like the first two questions that people have if we get a phone call, A, is it wheelchair accessible? And B, is it air conditioned? <laughs> um, and we are not air conditioned, unfortunately, in the summer. Um, third most common question is, is it haunted? And uh, I'm sure you guys probably get some of that too. It's not, by the way. Um, but anyway, so if you go to our website and you go to the plan of visit section there, it's a little drop down and one of the options is accessibility. So we're hoping that it's really easy for people to find the questions, the answers to the questions that they're looking for. And if we go down a little bit further, we will also find, um, so we have some special offerings for certain groups, um, hopefully make it a little bit more accessible programming. So if you look there for visitors who are blind or have low vision, um, the house is an 1891 house and it does tend to be pretty dark. That is one of the things that visitors most often mention to us when they're on tour is that it's a very dark house. And um, so that is definitely something ha that we have to consider when we're thinking about accessible programming, especially for visitors who are blind or have low vision. So we'll get to that in a minute. And um, touch tours are available upon request, which I'll also be talking a little bit more about today. For visitors who are deaf or hard of hearing, we do actually contract with an interpreting company and we pay for the cost of the interpreter to come and interpret for that group. Um, I've also learned that, the, um, that it's actually better to get two interpreters. Um, the tour itself is an hour and 15 minutes and so we've been told that it's actually really taxing for one interpreter to do that for the entire 75 minutes and that they need to take a break every 20 minutes. So keep an eye out for that if you guys have long programs. Um, and so then the, for visitors who have dementia, we also run a program called the Tour for People with Memory Loss, which I'm also going to talk a little bit about today. So those are pretty great. And then a general statement on accessibility at the bottom there. So tours for people with memory loss. So the James J. Hill House was the first Minnesota Historical Society site to pilot tours for people with memory loss. And we started that in 2013 um, with a grant from the Helen Bader Foundation. They're out of Wisconsin. And that grant lasted for two years. And then um, the Historical Society decided that it's still a priority to fund this program. So I do actually get funding right now through DICE, which is the Department of Diversity, Inclusiveness, and Community Engagement. And the rationale for that was that it's part of the lifelong learning strategic priority. We're actually targeting baby boomers 
and not the people with dementia necessarily, but um, there's 15 million caregivers in the entire country, and most of them are the baby boomer boomers, and they're looking for things to do with their parents. And a lot of their parents are unfortunately coming down with some dementia and Alzheimer's. So this is actually a really great way to get both of those groups sort of involved in this programming, which is great. Um, so we offer three every month. That's what we're able to fund through, um, through DICE right now. One public, so the public ones are really aimed for um, the people sort of still living at home um, and their care partners and their loved ones. And um, the two private ones every month are geared more toward um, senior living facilities, memory care facilities, that kind of thing. So people arriving in buses generally. Um, they're offered on Mondays and Tuesdays when no other groups are in the house. So we have, a real, we have real control over the environment that we're bringing them into, which we thought was really important. Um, but I was also actually just at a conference in June um, and they were talking about how it's actually a really good idea to not stigmatize these programs and actually put them with, with when the rest of the public is around, because otherwise you are isolating them. So something to keep in mind too. Um, they last 60 minutes, um, so again, our regular tour is 75 minutes, these are 60 minutes, and so they're much slower paced. They visit three different places in the house every month, and they are themed. So uh, we also realized eventually that these, are, um, these tours are not just for the person with dementia or Alzheimer's, they are equally for the care partner, right? So we had, um, we had one month, one month went to the same locations as the next month, and we had the feedback from the care partner saying that, well, we just saw the same spaces again. Why can't we have different spaces? So something also to keep in mind. Um, they're free. As I said, we're funded through DICE right now. And uh, we have a 20-person max. I upped that to 30 during the winter because we often have some no-shows. So just to account for that a little bit, um, again, Minnesota winter, you know. Um, yeah, so they're themed every month. And then the focus for these is really on the individual rather than on the content. So the idea here is that you're not necessarily imparting the historic, the history and uh, necessarily the stories of the family. You're not teaching them, right? You are allowing this experience to allow them to live in the moment. So it's a lot more about having fun, feeling welcome, um, and you know, talking with their care partners and having that communication and that engagement, much less than imparting content. How do we do that? We by engaging the senses. So they're very sensory based. Um, so we have a lot of touch objects. So because um, you know, historic house museum, right? You're not really supposed to touch things, which we'll get into later. Um, but we have uh, little things that they can touch. So we try to have um, samples of the draperies that are in the house. We have pieces of uh, the crystal chandeliers that they can touch. What else do we do? Um, yeah, a lot of fabric, fake jewelry, that kind of thing too. So really it depends on where they're going in the house. Um, if they're looking at a clothing exhibit, we might have fabric swatches. Um, if they're yeah, if they're looking at the chandeliers, chandelier pieces. Um, the other thing that we do tend to do, as Larry mentioned too, is that we have blow up like giant versions of a lot of the things that are on the walls of the house too. So we have a lot of paintings of the family and things and we have handheld blown up versions of those too so that they have a little bit easier um, way to see those. We also tend to try to get them up and moving. Um, so it's the one that you see in the middle there is them actually all dancing in the hallway of the house, which is really fun. So we try to play some music and um, get them up and moving and having fun. 
taste and smell as well. So they usually have a little snack. And um, fortunately, Mrs. Hill had a shortbread recipe, and so we can actually tie that back to the house, which is great. So they uh, usually have a little shortbread. Um, we've done tea, we've done cake for parties, we've done donuts, all sorts of things. And then the tours always end with a sing-along in the art gallery with our historic pipe organ, which is pretty great too. So 1,006 pipes in there, still works. Um, it's actually in need of a lot of restoration, but we actually just got fully funded to restore it back to concert quality next year. So very excited. I'm gonna be throwing up that entire six months. It's gonna be great. Um, <laughs> they're basically deinstalling it, taking it to Iowa, fixing it and putting it back in. Anyway, follow us on Facebook for that. Um, so, they, so we uh, sing along with the pipe organ. Um, it's really interesting because a lot of, um, so you think that they, they don't necessarily have a lot of memories, right? And a lot of um, ways to engage with the moment. But if you start a song, they might not be able to, say, to figure out like what it is. Like if you were to say, oh, great, we're gonna sing this song. But if you start it and they've heard it before, they can usually finish it. Um, so that's also something to keep in mind, which we've found is really fun. So what we've learned from those, um, so we did, of course, try to evaluate this program, and uh, we've learned that evaluation is tricky for this. So first of all, um, it's really hard to evaluate the actual person with dementia and with Alzheimer's. Um, success and engagement for one person might look incredibly different than success and engagement for another person. It also depends, of course, on how far um, advanced the disease is. So we also tried observing, and again, for one person, engagement might be, if they're in a wheelchair, just looking up. For someone else, it might be speaking. For someone else, it might be something else. So we've really decided that that's not a good way to do it. And what we decided instead is to have the care partner fill out an evaluation. Um, and so that's what we've been going with so far. It's so successful that we've actually expanded it rather than at the Hill House, expanding the Hill House program, we've expanded it to other locations that the Historical Society also operates. So it um, also operates at Mill City Museum in Minneapolis. They do a lovely baking program that's super fun, the History Center, um, and a couple other places as well. And we've also discovered that this sensory-based format works really well for other groups with special needs. So for a while, we actually had a group called ProAct. They work with adults with disabilities, and we had them booking these tours. And I unfortunately had to ask them not to, because again, this is, the need is for the dementia and the Alzheimer's um, audience, and not for them, unfortunately. Um, I've also heard of museums who just offer something called a sensory-based tour, and then these other groups can be sort of folded into that. Um, but unfortunately, that's not, again, that's not the way we're funded, and that's not the goal um, of this program. However, touch tours. So one of the groups that approached us about the sensory-based tours was a group called Vision Loss Resources, and they work with people with low or no vision. And they asked us if they could attend one of these programs. And we, again, had to say no, but that led us into maybe thinking about developing a program for them that would actually meet their needs. So that's what we decided to do. Um, so a lot of research, we certainly did our homework about what is this going to look like, and of course we communicated with this group. So they were also um, in partnership with us developing this program. So what I would also strongly recommend that you guys, um, if you're gonna be doing developing something like this, find a group that is willing to work with you and give their feedback, even initially in the initial stages of the planning. Um, 
And oh, I didn't talk about my guides. <laughs> so I have 16 tour guides right now. They're part time. Four of them know the tours for people with memory loss, the sensory based tours. And I decided to pull from them for this touch tour because, again, they're already sort of used to working with the sensory based tour format. And two of them um, were interested in learning that. So we piloted the touch tour for that group in November of 2016. So what does a touch tour look like? So first of all, you have to orient your groups to their surroundings in each room. So imagine, it's a poor, poor analogy, but imagining you're walking into this room blindfolded. You need to know where things are, right? And so you need to know where the doors are, you need to know where the exits are, you know, if you're scared or something for some reason, you need to know how to leave, or even where the bathroom is, right? And um, so things that we really take for granted and then um, you can use the hands of a clock as a reference. We found that really useful. So um, in front of you at 12 o'clock is a fireplace, and so on. Um, also, if you, even if you pass through a space and you're not actually like, thinking about interpreting it, you should probably still tell them what it is, because they still need to know where they're at in the building and in the space. Visual description. So I always like to think that the house speaks for itself, right? It's a beautiful building. People come to see it all the time. Um, we actually had three theater companies use us as a venue for promenade-style theatrical performances last year, and they didn't need to bring any set in because we were the set, right? So the house usually speaks for itself, and in this case, it can't. So you have to learn how to, how to describe it. So start with background information, move to visual description, and including impressions of style and mood. So not just necessarily that you're in the dining room. It was used by the family when they were entertaining, but also things like it feels very grand. It feels very imposing. So get a little emotion in there, too. Um, refer to other senses, texture, that kind of thing. So if they were to touch it, if they were to touch it, and if they're not actually touching it, make sure that they know what that texture would feel like. And then make sure that your um, visual descriptions are quantifiable. So I think most of my tour guides are used to walking into a room and saying, look at that giant chandelier up there. Giant doesn't mean anything to them, right? So you got to quantify it. So actually think about working in um, measurements of things. And then touch. So that's the last thing. So usually historic house museums and museums in general, what is our first rule? Do not touch, right? So that is something that we've struggled with. Um, and we, you know, for the memory loss tours, we do have props that we have deemed program use materials, right? That we are able to sort of hand around and touch. For these tours, we actually let them touch just about everything. And sometimes without gloves. Gasp, I know. So let's get into that. Um, and then you also um, don't want to rush the tactile experience, too. So we've noticed, too, that um, you should really focus on fewer things for them to touch, make sure, making sure that that touching experience is um, more engaging. And the other thing, which a lot of my tour guides struggle with, is that they want to show them everything and tell them everything. But there is no way you can get through a 36,000 square foot house doing a touch tour in an hour. So you've got to really limit where you go. So here are a couple images. And so yes, that is bare hands on the woodwork. But we also got some feedback that you can't feel anything. If you're wearing cotton gloves and you're trying to feel woodwork, you can't feel the details. And that is the whole point. What is the point of having someone come in for a touch tour and they can't feel anything? Um, the other thing that you're seeing at the top there are my chandelier pieces that are pretty fun to touch too. So um, I also really like um, at the other side here, He's feeling the cool marble. So again, textures, surfaces, that kind of thing. So feedback we've gotten from these are, 
as I mentioned earlier, fewer things to look at so we can spend a longer time examining them. So really try to pare it down. What is, you know, pick two or, two or three things to speak about and touch in every room, not five. Cotton gloves prevented the way things really feel. Um, this, the, one of the people who we were working with said that she's also done a touch tour where they were using latex-like gloves. And they said that the texture, the texture was a lot better for that, but the experience itself wasn't as good because they were kind of hot and sticky. And um, I think there's a lot of latex allergies going around too, so maybe not a good idea either. Um, so again, that's something that we have decided is a priority for us. We do want them to have the full experience and we have decided no gloves. Add more light or pick rooms to visit based on lighting. Um, so that is, again, a struggle that we have in a historic house museum. Um, it is inherently kind of a dark space, but there are brighter rooms. So um, even though usually the most impressive space in the entire house is the main hallway, it is also the darkest place in the entire house. So it might be something that we just don't interpret in the future. Or we could also add more lamps and things too. Having a map of the building ahead of time to give orientation to the space. So that makes complete sense, right? If you're not familiar with somewhere and you wanna, you know, you're going there for the first time, I often go online and I look things up. Even I, you know, when I go to restaurants, I always look up the menu first. But having that sort of prep time um, and knowing where you're going is really important. More chairs, I think that would also make a lot of sense too. Again, um, it's a long tour, <laughs> it's a big house, and um, they could also, we actually do that for the memory loss tours as they sit in most spaces too when they're doing um, the touching and the snacks and things. And then I also really didn't think about what the interpreter was wearing as affecting this program, but it really does. And so the interpreter was wearing a solid contrasting to skin shirt, which was good, but the shiny buttons were too shiny and distracting. So make sure you have not shiny buttons, or no buttons. Um, but we still consider it a success. I mean, obviously those are things that we have learned, we have incorporated into um, the later tours that we have done since November. And um, it's been, again, as you saw, it's on our website. People can request them now, which is pretty great. Um, so my final thoughts, accessibility is not an accommodation, it's a right. Um, so you really want to make sure that everyone can experience the offerings that you have um, in as much as they are able to. And then nothing about us without us, which is also what Larry mentioned earlier. So if you're going to think about and making a tour specifically for a certain group, make sure you involve them from its very inception. Um, and then of course have a system and evaluation in place so that you can make sure that it is actually giving them what they need. Thank you. Those are my business cards, by the way. They're great. <laughs> I'll leave that up for a minute. Thank you guys. All righty, and we'll have uh Time for some questions and discussion in, in just a little bit. Um, so there will be some, some interaction, but I want to um, kind of get a feel for um, where our audience is right now. So I uh, made this little continuum, and I mean it not to be insulting when I say completely clueless is the baseline, because um, that's, really, that's really where I was, where I started. I, I, I find that an accurate description of my naivete, my lack of information uh, going into this journey, and um, I admit it, I own it, and I'm working on it. So um, the, the neat thing about uh, my facility is that it was uh, built in 1986, state-of-the-art, had ramps and elevator and braille signage all over the place, and really for that era was was something special okay 
um, and and you can go through the building for years completely ignoring all of those things and not realizing that the Braille is in the wrong place. Um, that there's a specific place that Braille has to be for a person who's blind in order to find it. Um, so there's nothing like going through your facility with a person who's completely blind, um, showing you what 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 you need to work on a little bit there. So one of my first uh, bits of advice is to include people in the disability community in your planning, in your discussions. So uh, how accessible is your place? Um, are you, are you in with the ramps and elevators? Uh, maybe your place is, is historic house, so you're somehow grandfathered in. Um, since, uh, when when the ADA was um, reenacted in 2015, um, they said, I don't know if you've heard this, but they've said they're not grandfathering in anymore, historic structures. So we have to find a way to uh, give access to people um, of all abilities going forward. Now, don't let that scare you. Um, in fact, um, as I was listening to uh, Jessica, I was thinking, wow, they're like really on top of things and it's not like that in my museum and we're working on things, but it's not by any means ideal. So maybe you feel the same way or maybe you're way, way over here where everything is completely universally accessible in every conceivable way. Somewhere in the middle is everyone in the room, right? Okay, so a um, couple of things. Uh, everybody kind of gave their uh, lessons learned. Um, I learned through experience that fast and easy is not always the best way to start. Um, I will tell you a little bit about my journey in that um, I went to, um, I started basically in 2013, which is a, a little bit behind, but uh, I had some visitors come who were deaf, and I was excited because we had a DVD that had captions, and we were ready to go, and my staff couldn't find it. And it was like, what? We finally have someone. Um, and uh, once they found it, it turned out it was no longer, uh, the technology had already changed. After five years only, we couldn't play that particular DVD. And the poor, well, I feel sorry for the visitors, but they were entirely kind and generous about it. They had heard we had these uh, uh, caption videos. They came over, they asked for them and we didn't have them. So that's a, that's a painful lesson. Um, about the same time, uh, VSA Minnesota, uh, which is originally very special arts um, Minnesota, uh, funded by the Kennedy Center, was um, giving out some grants to help improve in outer Minnesota, we call, in Minnesota we have the Twin Cities and then we have the rest of Minnesota. And so <laughs> um, in outer Minnesota, um, they were giving some grants to arts organizations. It happens that my organization is half historical and half art uh, because we believe cultural heritage uh, certainly embraces the arts. Um, we're, we're actually able to, to do programming on both sides. 
So anyway, um, I, I decided, okay, I'm going to partner with this art museum next door, and we're going to buy an iPad and a Braille typewriter, and that's going to solve everything. And that was the level of my naivete. That was the level of my not understanding how things work and what accessibility really is. As you said, Jessica, access is not accommodations. It's not simply providing accommodations. Um, it's equal access to the same experience. You want to give the same experience or as close to the same experience as a visitor who does not have a disability. So uh, that's where I started and when you start at the bottom you can there's no place to go but up so everything is an improvement over over what we uh, initially had. Um, Anybody know why an iPad doesn't work for, um, say, my, my idea was, well, we'll just video record the tour, and then we'll caption it, and then people who are deaf can walk along with the tour guide, and they can be reading the tour at the same time as everybody else is listening to the tour. Anything? What? <laughs> Well, there's that. There's that not necessarily wanting to hold hold a, a computer. Other reasons why that maybe wasn't the right answer or the best idea. Tour guides go off script. Absolutely. And people ask questions. And um, people who are deaf want to know things, too, and want to be able to ask questions. How are they going to be able to do that? So I had the best of intentions, but it was not, it was not really equal access. Um, uh, also, how about the Braille typewriter? Anybody know what's not going to work about Braille typewriter? I thought I would just type up all of the... Uh, text panels and put them up. Okay, space. space, because for Braille signage plus your regular signage or your, your uh, regular print signage. Okay, other reasons. Not all vision impaired people read Braille, just as not all people who are deaf um, use ASL. Uh, there, there are a variety of ways. But there's one more reason. Anybody here ever worked on a Braille typewriter? Yeah, it doesn't translate like a regular typewriter. You don't just type in words and have them come out in Braille. You have to be certified in Braille transcription, which is a long training process and a very particular skill. So a Braille typewriter isn't going to do you any good at all unless you are a certified Braille transcriber. And these, again, I'm ignorant, didn't know, just plowed ahead with good intentions. So things didn't really start getting off the ground for us until I met Sherry Shirick. Sherry is, a, uh, in our community, a community advocate for people with disabilities. She's originally from Boston. And you go to Boston, and people who are blind can find their way around pretty well because it's a big city, and there, there is a lot of attention paid to that. In Fargo, North Dakota, we have um, signal lights that tweet like a cuckoo bird when, um, when they want you to uh, beware. Instead of actually saying words like you have here, 
which I think was a really nice innovation. Um, there is this kind of tweeting that goes on to say, don't cross the street, don't cross the street. Um, and my friend Sherry finds that very, very uh, insulting and irritating and not at all standard. Anyway, she was used to living her life in completely independently. She is completely blind. She does use a guide dog, uh, the Wonder Dog Millie. And um, so coming here, or coming to North Dakota, Minnesota, was a bit of a challenge to her. Um, and uh, definitely, as I began to spend more time with her, I learned a lot about what is and is not truly accessible. She would keep saying, that's discrimination. Oh, that's discrimination. And of course, you know, I'm used to her, I can take that, but sometimes staff members were not so excited about hearing that they were actively discriminating against people. But she was trying to convey there is a right way, there is a sound way that makes the experience equally accessible or close to it, and there are ways that may be good intention but not necessarily on the mark. So, um, success is also not measured by the number of people who use the accommodations. Um, I really worried about that, especially with grant funding, trying to get those numbers up. It sounds like you've got a lot of great response there. Um, for us, it's a matter of having to market it a lot quite a bit to get even a few people to come in to the museum. And I found that discouraging at, at first until I realized that's not necessarily the goal isn't the numbers. The goal is to create a culture in which your facility is welcoming to people with disabilities so they know they're not going to have to go up and say, could I please have the video that has the captioning? and feel like there's something um, odd or, or wrong about them coming into our museum. Instead, what we're going to work on uh, as we go along is becoming more and more welcoming and having things become more automatic rather than, um, rather than an extra thing. Oh, and here's the extra thing. Um, and that takes a lot of, of preparing. And it also takes a lot of research. That is my biggest advice is um, if, if you need to, if you were ignorant like I was, um, maybe the thing to do is to go back and start with research. And I know we want to be accessible immediately. As soon as I went to uh, museology's uh, workshop, I was like, okay, how are we gonna, how fast can I get this done? How fast can I get this checklist checked off and, and on to the next thing? Um, so that was a, another thing about um, lessons learned. Universal access is not achieved by checking off items on a to-do list. It is about actually having real cultural change in your organization and in your community. And, you know, how far else can we go out to that? I'll talk in just a minute about my, my vision, um, but I want you to think about what what is what would the world look like if it were fully universally accessible? How would buildings need to be designed? How would houses need to be designed? How would neighborhoods be laid out? Um, it's a whole, I mean, you could kind of blow your mind thinking about that. But anyway, research, I highly recommend going to the Kennedy Center website. Excellent place to start. They have an entire accessibility department 
which I was very um, envious of. But of course, um, my small museum isn't going to have ever have an accessibility department. I mean, I'm HR. I'm fundraising. How the heck are we going to do this? But it does help to get started on the process. And um, I will say, too, that another important thing is to uh, get board buy-in first. Make sure your board agrees that this is an important issue, that it is worth putting resources into, and uh, that they agree to put resources toward it. because. Um, you don't want to get stopped in the middle and have people say, well, we don't, we can't afford that. We can't do this or that. Um, I'll talk a little bit about fundraising in just a sec. So getting started, um, start now. That would be my other bit of advice is start now. Um, start thinking about it. Think about who might be a good resource. I'm very big on going out into the community and saying, can you help us with this? Who can help you with this? Um, who can help you with forming a, a community advisory board, a committee that could also do some of the work so you don't have to do all the work? The it, there's plenty of work for us all to do. I know just by looking at you, you're all go going, no, this is, I cannot do one more thing. And that's certainly what one of my staff said. I cannot do one more thing. I cannot add one more responsibility to my list. And um, that was unexpected for me, that there would be staff resistance to making our place fully uh, accessible. Um, but everybody has a limit to how much work they can do, right? You only have 24 hours in a day. I can only be two places at once, just two, okay? So all of those are challenges, and, and accessibility can sometimes feel like just one more thing to add to the list. But if you think of it in terms of cultural change and how long it does take to make cultural change in your community, in your facility, um, I've been with my organization eight years, and it has taken eight years to actually change the culture, um, not in terms of accessibility, but in terms of a new identity, and that's a whole other story. Um, and then also big advice is to break it down into manageable um, bits. I really focused a lot on widespread change as fast as possible, and that just does, it doesn't have to be that way. On the other hand, there are a couple of consequences to doing nothing. What are some of the consequences to doing nothing, do you think? Okay, well, no, you, do, you won't fail if you don't try, if you never. Oh, <laughs> there you go. That's where I was going. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Yes. There's a consequence to not doing anything. That's that, and that is. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, so um, cons there's bigger. There's even legal consequences. Anybody know about some of the legal consequences? You know, people with disabilities have been very, very kind. 
for the past almost 30 years now and have been very, very patient. Uh, it reminds me an awful lot of uh, uh, the civil rights movement um, in terms of just wait a little longer. Wait till we have money. Wait till we have the resources. Wait till we have enough time. Wait, wait, wait. And in fact, um, they, I even saw a program recently on drive-by lawsuits. Have you heard of drive-by lawsuits where people who don't have a disability can look at your facility and see that it is not ex fully accessible and file a lawsuit. They don't have a disability, they just want to sue you and get money, and they have been successful in some courts. So how's that for the scariest part of the whole thing? The, the price of doing nothing could be financial. It could be devastating. Um, not only is it the right thing to do, but it's a smart thing to do, to get started on it. At the very least, when you get started on it, you are moving in the right direction. You get some uh, people who have some expertise in disability in and talk to them. This is what I'd like to do. How can we go about doing this? And you start developing a 10-year plan, not a, not a one-year plan where I'm gonna get everything done, but a 10-year plan where I will make some cultural change. Okay, so I think I uh, covered everything here. And what I'm curious about then with everybody is um, thoughts, agree, disagree. What would you like to share about um, your journey in accessibility? Anybody on uh, this, this end of the continuum? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and Hill, uh, uh, the, Hill, the Hill House seemed like way over here. I mean, in, in my mind, I'm like going, wow, wow. Um, but of course, it, resources, you know, pending resources, and is it as much as the, the dreams we have? No, it isn't what we dream of necessarily. Yep. Oh yeah, you, you don't necessarily want to assume and put in a captioned video just because you see someone using ASL necessarily. You want, what you want to do is have it known already, the ideal is in the community, you are known for welcoming people with disabilities and if they um, want this, they can ask for this or that. Um, it, we don't, for example, audio description, which is where an, a narrator, almost like a subliminal voice, a narrator is describing only what's happening, what the person can see. No interpretation, it's just man with hat, sits down. You know, it's just, it's purely descriptive. That brings the descriptive to, um, to life, basically, for people who don't have vision. And, um, if we did that, if we just played those, why not just play those all the time? You know, if we're not going to offend anybody, um, then we would play the captioned one all the time. Well, because that isn't serving the audience in the same way. Yes?
yeah. Uh, we baby boomers are aging, and I'm aging badly. I don't know about you, but I am aging badly. And um, so everything's going. My mom was 90 years old, and she was watching the captioning, and I was like, hey, this is pretty cool. I, you know, I can sit way back here and watch it. So someone else had a question? hearing Absolutely, and that is part of what Larry's point about universal design is. You don't have elevators just for people in wheelchairs. You have elevators for people, parents, who are pushing a stroller, and for, um, well, just a whole lot of possibilities. There's uh, nothing like being in a wheelchair, by the way, to really, really get your head wrapped around this. I had broken my leg and went foolishly flew to San Francisco. That itself was a mistake, but I had to be in a wheelchair at a conference for three days in a facility that was not um, wheelchair accessible. And oh my, I got so mad. And whenever somebody says, you know, why, why are you so passionate about this? If I were, if I had vision impairment, I would be so ticked off really all the time because so much would not be accessible to me that that we take for granted and that is why for for us it is a social justice issue I got into some trouble with the staff when I said at a staff meeting this is for me as important a social justice issue as racism and of course somebody heard that as you're calling me a racist well, that's, you can take it that way if that's your choice, but anyway, we, um, we got into lots of discussions after that, but there was definitely, to me, this is that, the same, the same social justice issue, and so that's why I get a little preachy about it, so, yep. Yeah, I think that sounds like a really good idea. Um, I, we've struggled with both, and I've heard of museums that do both, and like started with one and moved to the other, and started with the other and moved to another one. Um, for us, I think it was 
we were definitely concerned about controlling the environment at first. Um, we knew that um, there's a lot of PTSD. We don't know um, what the triggers are for some folks for things too. And so you do have to be um, really aware of your surroundings and what might trigger people. Um, I've heard that even changes in flooring can trigger people um, who have Alzheimer's and dementia. It feels like they're falling if they're moving from one surface to another surface. Um, so that might be something to think about too. Um, yeah, I guess I would say, yeah, ask, ask them what they would prefer. Um, but yeah, I've also heard of museums who do their programming in full view of the public, and the public are welcome to join. Uh, excuse me, just a moment. There, I just wanted to point out that this, this is what makes accessibility so challenging, because a change in floor covering can also help someone orient themselves in space. Like if you have a stairway in your gallery, uh, you maybe want a different kind of flooring by the edge of that stairway so that people know they're coming into a different space. So it's, it's not easy by any means. You had a question um, or comment? We have to finish up real quick, but go ahead. Thank you very much. Yeah, and for for some people that's that's year seven. Okay, when we when we can, but um, for others, because um, websites are being designed now, 
with disability in mind, and there are some programs that are already being done there. Um, but yes, you, I have a, a consultant who has low vision, and he is uh, redoing our website in terms of um, making sure it's um, entirely accessible. And what we think of, it's not just larger print, although that's very important. There are a number of other things that are really, really important. But we do what we can do with what we've got. Okay, and then we start getting resourceful about um, funding, for example. Of course, Minnesota has the legacy amendment, and that helps us get a lot of things going. Um, for some reason, in 2008, the citizens of Minnesota voted upon themselves a 0.375% tax, sales tax, and that has funded, uh, that has produced $25 million for resources for new projects and and things that are at least not quite the norm yet. Um, hopefully accessibility will be the norm in the future. I know we've got a, we've run out of time, and um, but uh, we'll be here afterward to talk a little bit, and I thank you so much for your attention. <laughs>